So their body is underground and their train head is up on the tracks. <laughs> so when you board a train, you're actually, act, a man. you're actually standing inside a man's head <laughs> and he's like running on the ground underneath the train. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to episode 129 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm the CSS combatter. I'm Sam and I make words and pictures. And this is a show where we t- <laughs> talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is December 18, 2017. Still. But still. Some, still in it. It keeps hanging in there. Now, before we get started, we have a warning. Anything could happen on this show. There will be profanity. And also, we're adults, and we're going to talk about adult stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this show isn't for isn't for chids or babbies. All right. Let's get into the news of the week. For starters, Loot Box Watch 2017. What's the latest in the news? The latest is that there's a game that came out on Steam called I Can't Believe It's Not Gambling, mm-hmm. which the entire premise of is to strip out all of that stupid stuff that usually happens around you getting loot boxes, which is the gameplay, and you just yep. get loot boxes. Uh, well, I think you play a you play a really simplified game of snake. Correct, but everything you pick up and you eat is a loot box. Is a loot box, and, you, <laughs> and then you get to open it afterwards. But my favorite part of it is that most of them are literally piles of trash. So you'll or trash cans or trash cans that have mm-hmm. flies on them, and then you can get uh, what is it? You can get different loot inside the loot boxes that changes the skins of you the can, loot boxes. Yeah, it's cosmetic changes to your loot boxes. I think you can also get loot boxes that upgrade your lo- future loot boxes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a great, <laughs> it's a great little piece of satire. I think it's like ninety nine cents. It was on sale for. I don't know was, if it's worth playing, but it is worth looking at. It was one cent off and one yep. percent. Well, I discount. feel like this is this is sort of uh, it's like the this the evil. Evil twin of mm-hmm. something like Cookie Clicker, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like so. Cookie Clicker, you know, like it it uses just the purest form of that that craving that people have for growth, mm-hmm. right? And it just like boils it down to its essence, and you just keep clicking on that fucking cookie mm-hmm. for hours and hours and hours for no reason other than that it keeps getting bigger, right? Because like we love that as people. And then if you mix, so if you sort of layer that in with with the sort of uh, Pavlovian randomness that comes from loot boxes, and you've got like a random loot box clicker mm-hmm. combo thing, which is weird because like all the reviews on it, people are, like people actually have a lot of playtime in this loot box game. Yeah, just uh, because like it actually it actually is full of things that people like. Yeah, like people love that. <laughs> I mean, it, it works. It works on a psychological. Level, yeah, it right? works on a psychological. Of course, gameplay wise. It's not going to win any awards by any stretch, yeah. except for maybe one for satire. But uh, And also there was a, a new regulation came out from, or a new a word from a regulator came out from New Zealand who said that loot boxes are not gambling because you cannot extract real world value back out of the loot box once you put money in, which we were talking a little bit before the podcast started. It sounds like maybe there's just a different definition of gambling on the horizon. So who knows? We'll, we'll just keep an eye on it. We'll I keep s- it up to I, can't, I just can't see a future. I guess gambling has to be for money, I think, is how it's mostly defined. Yeah, right. Yeah. I can't see a future in which this doesn't come back to bite all of us in the ass. Mm-hmm. Like this this skirting, like everybody just like wanting to wanting to skirt this line all day long mm-hmm. is it's gonna it's gonna invite way too many questions. And I think there's gonna be collateral damage. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, so last week we also had a, a lot of uh, interesting discussions inside the studio about a uh, production process for uh, scuffle buddies and also just kind of in general. So let's talk about that. What happened? What's our mm-hmm. what's our take? Well, so the, the thing kicked it off was I made an art asset and kicked it over to Seth, and that one art asset was essentially trying to solve a problem in the game, but in doing so, of course, ends up creating a need for an additional system or some other, uh, you know, some other programming work to be done. And this happens quite a bit where because of the sort of flyby, flyby the seat of the pants nature of how we make the games, uh, there's frequently times where either uh, I'll make an art asset or Seth will make a new uh, a system that requires sort of retrofitting or doing something to rework some of the art or, or causes essentially work to uh, get more complicated. And so uh, Seth were kind of arguing about this thing and Adam heard us and overheard us and came over and was like, it sounds like you guys are just doing this wrong because this shouldn't happen. Right. Yeah. Uh, so essentially what, what we realized is that we hadn't actually been sitting down uh, a series of rules that we were going to, going to stick by during, uh, during our 
our development process such that there was basically a lot of chaos or a lot of randomness that came with us actually doing the dev, which caused blowout in terms of timelines and all this other stuff. And on a smaller game project, that's actually totally fine because there's not enough things don't have things not when, room. when things quote blow out. It's like, oh shit, we got to spend an extra 18 minutes. Right, right. There's <laughs> not enough room to worry this. about it. But on a game like uh, Scuffle Buddies, which has a lot of interacting systems, uh, it, it kind of got to the point where we're like, oh, okay, if we don't get this under control, then we're going to increase our dev time considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we sat down and we, we said, okay, what, what have we been doing? What's working about that? What's not working? Uh, and then we just kind of hammered it out. Yeah. So I think, I think for me, the biggest sort of, um, sort of simple way to think about it is that we had put a, a really strong focus on marketability really early. Cause we're like, we want to get this thing to a, to a state where we can start showing screenshots and start really like promoting it, um, super early which means we kind of treated everything like it needed to be at like final production level. So anytime we created a new art asset, we're like, all right, let's fully animate this thing. Let's get it into its exact state that it needs to be. Um, so it's kind of like that striving for perfection kind of a thing. Right. And uh, so that what that means then is that getting things up to that state is just very, it's very art and code heavy. Mm-hmm. And so every new art asset would take longer than it normally would. And then also that would always add a lot of extra uh, time on the programming side. And because we are sort of iterating on the rules as we go, then a lot of times these art assets would, would require new rules to be added or new things to new systems to be created, which then either we have to make the decision, do we flesh out the core systems of the game or, or rework the systems to implement this art asset. Yeah, you were basically iterating production level code. Yeah, right. Which is just not yeah, you don't, crazy you don't thing do it. Do, yeah. yeah. So so of course we gotta we gotta go back to the the sort of focus on the prototype kind of stuff. So our art assets instead of being you know full production level with you know broken apart into lots of different pieces and then animated and everything, we just need them to be uh, visually distinctive in the game so that we can test gameplay mechanics and mm-hmm. stuff. Right. So. So that means, you know, for maybe a creature, instead of having it be fully colored with five different body parts, uh, we just need a, a single sprite of that creature mm-hmm. and we can just move it around in the game world and we'll know what it's doing. Right. 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 Um, so, yeah, the focus should be on a lot of these sort of early iterative things. And also the, the other thing we were doing was anytime we came up with a new idea for a game system that we thought we needed, we would try to future proof it. Be like, what are all the things that this system would need to do? All right let's code all those things up mm-hmm. and make it totally generic and robust. Um, but then this early in development, there's a lot of iteration, which means that system might not even be present two months from now. So that's just wasted time. Right. So this, this early in dev, you know, the focus should be on just get it in there, get it doing what it needs to do. And then once you really get a sense of the scope and the, and sort of the outline of the problem, then you can make a more generic system that can sort of solve those problems. Well, like part of it is funny because, of course, uh, this didn't used to be a problem because we didn't have the capacity for this to be a problem because any system we made wasn't generic because we didn't know how to do that in an yeah. effective way, yeah. mm-hmm. which meant everything was just very rigidly solved exactly the problem that it was built to solve. We were Our problems were actually solved by our own inexperience and stupidity Correct. much earlier which is a great, <laughs> it's a great way to go fast is the thing. Um, yeah. When you don't know anything, you don't have any options. Yeah. So you're like, all right, so we, we need to be able to chop trees to get logs out of them. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to write up code that literally does exactly that mm-hmm. thing. And then when the question comes, well, now we need to chop rocks with a pickaxe. It's like, okay, let me see if I can bend this. See if I can bend this a little bit. Right. And then Crashlands is born eventually. Mm-hmm. Right. But another part of this that, that's been interesting is that uh, kind of remembering back during Crashlands dev, which took two years the periods in which it was not a just not a good experience of a game, which is actually most of the dev. It was about the first eighteen months. Yeah, at uh, least. <laughs> and, and you would you would play it, and occasionally, you know, we'd have a design pivot or something, and get it all worked in, and you'd play it, and be like, "Oh yeah, I really see where this is going." But of course, it still wasn't good. Well, you could see where it was going, but it just wasn't. It just wasn't getting there. Yeah, like it, it kept always going toward a good game, mm-hmm. but it never quite made it until way way late. Yeah, and I think it's. It's been interesting because Adam has been working on this backend web infrastructure stuff for six months now. Nine, probably nine months. About nine months. Yeah. Um, for Bscotch ID2. Now, now Ruckus. Mm-hmm. And uh, to the point where he was working on it and had to sort of just trust in the in his ability to pull off the final outcome, mm-hmm. but with nine months of a waiting window before yeah, that was actually in, visible. Trust in the process and in the end goal. And then mm-hmm. and then you just work. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And a lot of it is, it's just these, these really... 
complicated problems that have very disappointing outcomes where you're like, we need login. Like we need a good login mm -hmm. system. And so you spend a lot of time researching and making sure it's really secure and really easy to use. A mm -hmm. couple months go by, you have login now. Now you can log in. Now you can log in. Cool. Which is completely useless <laughs> without <laughs> other, things. other things to do once you have logged in, right? right? Yep. So, and so Scuffle Buddies is a, is a more systems-rich game than, than Crashlands was, actually, uh, is following a similar trajectory to that, which is that it needs multiple, or basically almost all of the systems in play before the thing's really going to start to kind of, you know, sing internally. And so it's been interesting, and I think this is an interesting discussion that I, it happens a little bit in game dev, but you know, riding that line of being disappointed with the thing you're making, but still able <laughs> still to, yeah, to, you know, trust in the end vision and, and keep on working on it. Uh, it's definitely a, I don't know if it's a skill, but I think it helps having other people around to kind of bounce. I honestly do of. think that that's just what it is. So I think about game, it's, it's just about having people around who, who, when you're like, fuck this project, that they're like, no, Hang in there, buddy. That's true. I guess yeah. it's this. It's happened with everything we've ever made. Yeah. Well, it's so. it's also about the the confidence that you have that you'll be able to pull it off because that 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 important idea that we say a lot, which is that you know ideas don't matter; it's only execution. Right. But while you're in the middle of executing something, it's things are bad until they're good. That's just yep. They they don't get to be good first, or even be good early on, or you know, it requires an enormous amount of work to make them good. Which means most of the time that you're working on a thing, some creative endeavor, it's gonna suck. And you're going to have a tendency to say, well, this is just, just a bad idea. I should mm -hmm. just start over, take a different approach, maybe take out this system, add a new system, whatever, instead of trusting that you'll be able to execute it. And that it's just a matter of getting across the shittiness hump, you know, where mm -hmm. you can actually get to the good The thing. shittiness hump. Yep. yep. Which is, it's, it's more like a mountain, really. Because yeah. it just takes a lot. But mountain. once you get over it, then there's another just, one. Now you're just downhill skiing. <laughs> well, I was say, actually, there's just another one. Turns out it's a mountain range. It's a range of mountains. It's yeah. just a long slog. But this, this is also why yeah. you see, you know, so many people uh, who are setting out on creative endeavors, especially by themselves. So if they're writing yeah. a book or whatever, it's, there's this really fun idea generation phase where you're like, oh, like we could do all these things. Like I have this great idea. We're going to have this game. It's like an MMO, but it's also like integrated with Twitch. And then he's got like, it's a first person shooter, but it's also an RTS, you know, and like you come up with all this crazy shit and then you go to work on it. And then it's just garbage. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that the idea is bad. Although that particular one that I just put out was pretty bad. Maybe, uh, maybe. but maybe yeah. unless somebody does a really good job of it. <laughs> um, but then it just takes a really long time. And Every day you wake up and you, you get, you can, if, especially if you're by yourself, you can make the decision to just be like, I'll just work on something else now. Mm -hmm. Like I, I got other better ideas. Right. And so there's this, there's this particular, there's this huge group of people, especially in these creative communities where I like to think of them as like dream chasers, mm -hmm. right? Where like every day there's a new dream for them to go after mm -hmm. because it's so much easier to come up with the idea and just kind of like wistfully kind of long for it. Because once you actually start working on the thing, you just have to wake up and just sort of like stare your own disappointing piece of garbage like in the face all day mm -hmm. for months and months and months. Mm -hmm. It's it's very, it, it can be very emotionally draining, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And you just have to hang in there. Yeah. It's, it's all about just truly believing in the process and believing in yourself as you're engaged with the process. Because for me now it doesn't, it gets, it gets kind of annoying mostly to, for me to not be able to show people what I'm doing. Right. But for me internally, like I don't, I don't actually have a personal struggle anymore. I used to have a personal struggle during, during this kind of long, uh, sort of slow development cycle. But, um, but now it's mostly just a bummer that I can't show people what I'm doing, which is a thing that I just know. I'm just, as long as other people trust what I'm doing, then it's, then it's that's fine. also, fine. but you know, you're, so now that you're learning front end web development, yeah. Now you can you can make stand-ins for showing people stuff, yeah, right? right? So you can be like, look, if you click this button, now magic happens behind the scenes, which yeah. took me six months to do. Right. Mm -hmm. The but cool stuff is all the behind the scenes magic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which right. which and this is true for games too, right? There's there's a lot of when people when you're playing a game and you experience, you know, some really epic moment, uh, that's just the tip of this enormous iceberg of all the time and mm -hmm. attention and care and love that went into that thing yeah. to give you that experience. You don't think about the magic that happens when you're playing Halo and you don't fall through the ground. Yeah. Right. right. Like, which is a hard problem actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff that goes into well, it. Speedwitch, there's this new series on Gama Sutra called Dirty Coding Tricks, uh, which is so good. For any of you who are just interested in reading up on essentially the goofy stuff that does go into the behind the scenes of of various games and is essentially programmers hacking their way around various uh, 
various problems, but like usually on a really tight deadline. Uh, it's some of the funniest, some of the funniest game dev sort of, uh, I guess, behind the scenes work that I've read about. And in particular, I think there's, there's stuff like uh, the one from, from yesterday was, was this idea that there's this, this company that was putting out this game on the Xbox and the Xbox didn't have enough memory to hold all of its levels and play it at one time. And so what happened is after you played a level, if you played like two or three in a, in a row, then the Xbox would just crash. And so they, they, they weren't cleaning up the RAM between right. levels well enough. And because of the way that they did their dev, they actually didn't figure this out until basically right before they needed to have it submitted for going gold, which is when that actually gets burned onto a physical disc in a factory. Uh, and you can't go back from that, especially back then. And so uh, the way they got around this problem was not by like, they couldn't figure out how to clean up the memory enough. And so they ended up doing this thing where it shows a loading screen so it looks like it's loading and then it fades to black. And what actually happens is that they turn off the Xbox because that allows for a complete memory wipe. And then using the Xbox's API, tell it to restart itself at the next level in the game. So it skips the loading screen. It skips the like game selection screen or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they just reboot the console and reboot it right back into the next level. And nobody knows. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> so the quote loading screen is just your Xbox turning itself off and on again. So this is sort of thing where like, you know, everyone, you're, you're going to focus on these big cinematic moments or, you know, the gameplay or whatever else, but there's thousands of these goofy stories in the background. Uh, yeah. My, us, so my, my favorite story mm-hmm. is from, from one of these previous Gama Sutra series about Fallout mm-hmm. where... Uh, they needed a, a train that you could ride and they realized much later in dev than should have been, than they should have, that they actually didn't have any code to allow things to move in the world. Just objects. Right? Objects. Yeah. The only things that could move were characters. And so they, they solved this problem by creating a character whose head was a train and uh, the, and it's a person now running <laughs> along the ground with a train for a head <laughs> And they just put a second sort of plane under the ground that the that the train person could run on, so their body is underground and their train head is up on the tracks. <laughs> so when you board a train, you're actually, act, a man. you're actually standing inside a man's head, and he's like running on the ground underneath <laughs> the train. <laughs> they show a picture of the 3D model for it because it has legs. Like, yeah, they put stare, it like it's a legit human model with running around with a train yeah. head. Yeah, uh, very funny. So this kind of shit happens all the time. And unfortunately, no, like this, this to me is the stuff that's like the real magic. Oh yeah. Games. <laughs> and, it, and it's easy to get disappointed when people don't, when the people don't know and can't possibly know about all the things that you did to make mm-hmm. a thing finally work. And right. to, to give a person that, that little, that little tiny experience, because just the amount, the mountain of stuff that I go into that is enormous. And while you're climbing that mountain, you know, look, just like looking for the peak that, that is the only thing that other people are actually finally going to see. And you don't even get to see it because it's so far away from you right mm-hmm. now. You know, it can feel a little bit exhausting, but, uh, but you got, just got to trust. You just got to trust in that system. Every day you make the game 0.2% better. Yep. yep. You know, so eventually changed, uh, it's fine. That's why we changed our production process. Cause we were, we're looking at actually the system. faster. Yeah. We're looking at the system. We're like, the system's not going to be good enough for this mm-hmm. in a big way. So, so we got to make those sort of fundamental well, and, changes. And in a lot of ways it, it it's actually you guys leaping from mountain to mountain, but staying at the same level every time. Right. right. Because if you're like, mm, let's, let's change all of this now, as you were just like in the middle of climbing the mountain. Right. Then what you've really done is just move to another mountain. Right. Which mm-hmm. is still, we're still in sort of like the shitty undergrowth of the yeah. mountain. But we what, what you want to do is climb a whole bunch of small hills first. So you can kind of figure out what you're you know? doing, get warmed up, learn all the rules, you know? And then, because the other part of this too, because we started talking about tooling and, you know, trying to put together some scripting and, or, and some other things to make it easier to, to bring things to a production level. And that was actually part of the problem was that things weren't ready for production because they still need to be prototyping. But because we were trying to push everything towards production, mm-hmm. then that also started to make us think, well, now we need some tooling because we need to make sure we can get all of these characters in here and all of these uh, creatures and stuff. Um, when really we should have said, well, we don't need any of them in there because we're still developing we're still systems, prototyping. Right? We, don't, we don't need that yet. And so we don't need... We don't need the additional layer of tooling to now get all of them in there as fast as possible because we should wait until all the rules are actually set yeah, in place. Because you can't develop tools till you know the rules, yep. as they say. Ooh, I think it's, yeah. Yep. Um, also, in the news this week, Sam did a high-intensity interval training. Oh, my God. And apparently God. there's a story there. Well, the story is just that, so you know, I, about it. I'm coming into my 28th year of life. Mm. And I was like, I feel like I'm in pretty good shape for this. So we get back from Uruguay last week and... And on Monday evening, I was like, you know, it worked out a couple of days. So I'm going to go ahead and do this. It's like a 15 minute or it's a 30 minute workout total. And it's like the beginner's 
HIT workout. And all a HIT workout is, is it's just a series of, in this case, it was no weights. You're just like, I was just in my house. Uh, basically doing jumping jacks. You kind of, right? you kind of, it's like the adventure time dance where their arms turn into noodles exactly and right. they just kind of like wave around. <laughs> so you're just waddling around. And so I was, you know, I was feeling pretty good about myself. I feel like overall in terms of where I'm at in life. And then I did this hit workout. I only lasted for, I think like 11 minutes of the 30. Uh, literally felt like I was going to vomit. Like it was like the hardest <laughs> I've worked out in a long time. And I was like, what is happening? And then now I'm still sore. Like my, my whole body is so, like so a sore week ago. that I woke up last night at four in the morning hurting. And I had to go take some more Tylenol because my legs were just tired. And I was like, what happened to me? <laughs> I thought I was young and feeling good. And then it just, Yeah, but know. the crazy thing is you are still. And it's like, so think about where you're at now. Just extrapolate that. Oh, God. Another 20 years. Because compared to, you know. When I turned 28, that's when shit started to go south. So, you know, man. that's probably. That's what I got to look forward to. That's just the magic age. Yep. It is, yeah, I think so. We don't need we we technically don't need to live past that, you know, from an evolutionary perspective. That's true. Supposed to get all your work done before. You could you could have like, you know, from a from like a caveman days, you could have been a grandparent by this age. Yeah. You know? Could have made a lot of babies. Yeah. So you don't you're 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 an elder. You're a village elder now. That's true. You're good. You don't need to be doing high intensity workout exercises. <laughs> You've got grandkids for that. Yeah. <laughs> have have them go hunt wild animals uh -huh. or whatever. Yeah, send the babies out. I'll just yeah, become toothless and have them feed me. That's yep. what would happen. Yeah. That's probably what would have happened back yep. then. Um and also speaking of workouts, so we we talk a lot about uh process improvements, right? And about trying to examine the way that you do things to, you know, get more out of life. Mm -hmm. Because if you do all the things that you want to do, then you're already in much better shape than literally almost everybody because yep. most people don't do the things they want to do. Uh, and then on top of that, if you can do things faster and, and more efficiently than everybody else, then you just get to have more life, mm -hmm. right? If you do twice as many things as everybody else, then you basically lived two a, times, lived a double lifetime, which is awesome. Not a double life though. That's different. That's a different you could, you have a family depending on which things you're doing. That's yeah. true. <laughs> Actually true. Because it if could you be the do, way you do that, if you do things twice as efficiently, you could just have a double you life. You can weave both a, of which are like a regular person's normal life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can weave a double life sort of in the middle there. Yep. Right. So you've, you've now got two families and two homes with two mortgages, mm -hmm. you know, yep. and you work two full-time jobs, with two sets of hobbies. Yeah. Two, sets two of circles hobbies. of friends, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so, like you, so you could totally yeah. do that if you're efficient enough. Mm -hmm. So, so my big kind of realization uh, this past week was much like Sam. I was like, I'm just not in, I'm not in nearly as good of shape as mm -hmm. I would like to be. And also as I used to be. And so I was thinking back on a couple of years ago when I was going to the gym five days a week and uh, I was like, why, why was I able to do that at that point? Cause I was just as busy. I had just as many things going on and I lived farther away from the gym. I lived 15 minute drive from the gym. Now I'm two minutes away. So like you would think that this mm. would be easier. Right. And so, so I thought through my processes and I realized that because the gym was 15 minutes away, then I had, I had done a lot more planning around it. So back then I would have a gym bag, you know, where I would have everything I needed. I have my soap, I'd have my clothes, I'd have everything so that when it came time to go to the gym, the only thing I did was grab my bag and go, go to the gym, work out, shower at the gym, mm -hmm. and then put my normal date, like normal human clothes back on and then resume normal life. Right. But now because when we moved and I am now two minutes from the gym, my process changed to, well, now that it's time to go, I'll go like wander around the house and find all the things I need, find my lifting gloves, mm. find my shoes, get changed, go out into the cold of winter wearing my gym shorts. Or the hot of summer. Or the hot of summer. Go to the gym, uh, work out, come back home. Now I have to decide when am I going to shower? Do I wait? Do I do it now? Blah, blah, blah. This is interesting. So this reminds me of the, uh, the basically the optimal difficulty problem from driving which is that a lot of studies found that if you're driving on a wide open road, then you have a higher incidence of crashes. Like those roads that you're on there have like the switchbacks yeah. where everyone's just gripping the wheel and really, really paying attention have usually have a lower, uh, a lower crash rate than the busy, busy, definitely open. a higher sort of like rate of heart attacks. Oh yeah. A for lower sure. rate of just accidents. Your adrenaline's yeah. higher the whole time. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. My bet is that with the preponderance of cell phone usage while driving, that that's no longer true. I, yeah. But I think this thing because I think now no matter what you're doing, people still talk on their phones. I mean, that's what Doctor Strange is about. You know, he's driving at 300 miles an hour on a windy road. He starts texting somebody, and, and then, then he, he becomes, becomes a, a wizard. Yep. 
which, which seems is basically like what happens. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so back, I mean, back to your thing. It's like you know, you you went from having a very actually a difficult time getting to the gym, which required that you sort of essentially paid more attention. Yeah, I, I had to commit to the idea right. of turning this into part of my routine by moving closer to the gym. I don't. I I thought, oh yeah, no, it's just so easy. I don't need to worry about it. Mm. But then I, I, so I, I made it so that I had to make repeated decisions leading up to the moment that I stepped out the door, which means every one of those decisions is an inflection point where I could just decide to not, mm. right? So, so that means that I was going to the gym one or two days a week instead of five, uh, and sometimes I just wouldn't go for a week, right? And so. So also, like, it's a good idea to kind of get your gym time in now because starting on the first for exactly two weeks, the you gym's going to be real busy. Yep. Fortunately, it only lasts for two weeks. It only lasts for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I got to get that time in now. Well, what I can probably do is during the first couple weeks of the year, I can go at, at like six, six o'clock in the morning yeah. or something because people who do the New Year's resolutions, like they're not that committed. They're not going to go at six in the morning. That's true. No, that's true. They'll try to weave it into their normal, like after work or something, and then they'll just abandon it. So, yep. yeah. So, I, so I've repacked my gym bag. I'm back on the, back on the train there, but that comes down to that, you know, by batching your processes and trying to figure out like, where are your decisions happening? And then you automate those processes so that you don't make those decisions. Right. I was thinking about like yep. you're by forcing yourself to actually shower at the gym, I feel like you're reducing the chance that there's just going to be a weird distraction point that happens like when you get home. So yeah. for me, if I get home from the gym and I'm super sweaty, but of course now I'm home. So maybe I like make food or just go kind of mess around with the computer a little bit or whatever. So like there's this lag window before I'm yep. actually like done being yeah. at the gym. Cause you're still gross and you're like, I can't like, I don't want to like go out in public. I don't want like right, to right. groceries or do normal human activities. Cause I'm just covered in, sort of human mm -hmm. disgustingness. Right. So you kind of reduce the possibility of there being some waste in there. Yeah, exactly. I dig it. So, so, you, so you turn the gym experience into just one whole complete package. Mm -hmm. You go there looking like a normal human. You sweat everywhere. Mm -hmm. You vomit a whole bunch. You shower and clean yourself up. Put your clothes back on. You resume being a normal human, and then you go back to As normal, if it normal never happened. Life. As if mm -hmm. it never happened. Yep. No one will ever know that you worked out. <laughs> And you just gradually get more and more super jacked. Yeah. Yeah. And People are like, like I, how? Happening? I've never seen you in gym clothes. And you're like, I don't know. I don't Crazy. Know. I've never even seen you sweat, people will say. So <laughs> You always smell so good. You always smell so good. All right. So that's that's my gym story. I dig it. Uh, all right. So that's all the news we have for this week. Let's get on to some questions. And these questions come from our listeners over at podcast.bscotch.net. Although, perhaps in the future, that website will, will be changing. It definitely will. Adam's, Adam's totally overhauling our, just all our web. Just our web. What do you think yeah. of that's, the That's a little design. bit lower on the priority list, though, is the, the podcast page. Because it does exist. It works. Like, whatever. It gets the job done. But it's uh, it's due for... It's a little hideous. It's due for... It's due for a slap. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm more upset with, actually, the functionality. Like, I don't think it looks great, but it's passable, you know? Uh but I'm more upset with the f how the thing actually works behind the scenes, which is stuff that nobody actually knows. Yeah. Mm. So if you think it's ugly and you're correct, I'm, what I'm telling you is that it's even uglier, it's even on, uglier the on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's, so if, it's what's on, if it's what's on the inside that counts, then it's real bad. It's even uglier than you could possibly but, imagine. You know, at least it's living its truth, you know? Yeah, it's it like, is. It's true to itself. It's authentic. Yep. Just as hideous <laughs> yep. on the outside as it is on the inside. Yeah. Oh man! Wait, but that is that's uh, basically the, the priority list is rebuild www.bscotch.net so I can relaunch it, and then everything that's peripheral to that, like podcast.bscotch.net and forum, like all those all those things, will then over time slowly get pulled under that umbrella. But it's uh, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a bit before that happens. All right. It's going to be good, though. It will be, also, it will before be we get good. to questions, one last thing I wanted to talk about, which is the Shenanah Jam. Mm. Oh, so, yeah. I guess we have dates on that, don't we? We have dates on this. Uh, not like the weird fruit, but actual uh -huh. times of the... Nor actual calendar. human dates, like two people, like two people going meeting to a place. Coffee. Mm -hmm. yep. um, so, the, the idea is the Shenanah Jam is something that we did back in May... And we had a hundred and fifty people. I think it was just a shit ton. No, we of had people. 120 submissions, 120 games, and 300 people. Submitted. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it is oh, a yeah. game jam. Yeah, it was uh, big. it's a game jam that we host over the interweb. 
And it turned out to be super fun. We had a, a Discord server running that everybody just piled into and mm-hmm. people were sharing their games. And um, and so we were thinking sort of what can we do with the Shenanah Jam to really make it into a real thing? Uh, and so our solution is we're going to try to rope in as many other game developers as we can. Mm-hmm. And we have our uh, our sort of contact management system internally where we, you know, we keep, we keep tabs on everybody in the universe mm-hmm. and we we're just kind of perusing it after our Uruguay trip. And we, re- we realized we've got almost like 600 developers mm-hmm. in this system. So we're going to try to rope in as many people as we can. Yeah. We're basically going to see how many other full-time professional dev studios we can get top on board with this. Mm-hmm. Sort of be, My bet good. is it's going to be a, a low fraction. It, it might is, be zero. But it's a big number, though. So it might maybe, be zero. Yeah. It might be zero. But yeah, but even if we get a handful, that'd be pretty If, if yeah, only, pretty if even 1% of them, yeah. we got six. Yeah. So, <laughs> which is really not bad. Uh, yeah, so, but the, the idea there would be, if we can if we can get commitments from at least some, uh, or even just one mm-hmm. other studio to be like, yeah, we'll have some people in, then, then that we can use to kind of help boost the event where we can say, yeah. like, hey, like, come make games alongside, you know, us and then whoever else, you know, mm-hmm. jumps in. Um, and so we're going to start promoting the thing pretty soon and allowing signups pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And I think the date is going to be the weekend of June 8th. I think so. So June 8, 9, 10, it'll be a three-day uh, game jam. So mark your calendars and then coming up. The page the- is already up, I think, isn't it? Uh, we got to do a quick revision pass on it, okay. but it's it's about ready. So probably... Next episode, we'll have some info on on where to go for that. So keep your eyes out. All right, let's get on the questions. First question comes from Blonde Viking ninety one. Mm, the regal, yeah. Uh, just saw Badland Brawl announcement from Finnish Frogmind. Mm. Reminded me a lot of your jam game and Scuffle Buddies. How do you feel about this? How should one feel about other studios? attempt at your own idea in development. Mm. Well, so this really comes down to uh, the idea of simultaneous invention, which is basically just a problem that you will have if you make anything creatively. Uh, and a good way to look at this is to look at the the glut of, what is it, uh, sort of class-based FPSs that just suddenly appeared all at once. And they were all years year long, uh, multiple yeah, year long, two, projects. three, four year projects. And those um, studios didn't call each other four years ago and say, Hey, are, are we all, you guys want to make an FPS? We're going to make one basically too. the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think it's a big thing to understand is that someone is making your game somewhere. And the really important thing is that you figure out enough ways to execute it. So it's just better than theirs or to add stuff or to different it enough. so that it's different. And so, yeah, yeah we, we took a look at the, at Badland Brawl and it looks, it looks rad. Uh, it's beautiful, first yeah, of all. Very polished. Um, very polished, but uh, the and the, the extent of that sort of uh, the extent of the gameplay does mirror to a degree what we did with uh, with Snuppy Rustlin and what exists in Scuffle Buddies, but with a, a lot of tremendous differences that I think we're going to be totally fine not being yeah uh, mm-hmm. not being compared to them. Um, even if people say, "Oh yeah, the combat is reminiscent of blah," yeah, um, I think even just based on the stuff that the public does know about Snuppy Rustlin and Scuffle Buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, Badland Brawl is basically a physics-based, PvP-based right. action game that in its format is a lot like what we have, where you got like, you know, a, a, a one-dimensional field and or two-dimensional field in the middle that's like a line that your character's running across. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got things on the side and you're like playing cards basically to try to like keep enemies from getting to your base basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but theirs is in real time and it's action-based. And ours is uh, strategy based, right. so it's 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 different. It's mm-hmm. going to be different in feel, and then we also have a lot of other stuff that kind of wraps around that yeah. that no other game is going to have. Yeah, and this is actually an important point though, because similar to when we, you know, a year into Crashlands, we talked about this this inflection point where we realized that the game didn't have a differentiation factor at all, and that's where we put the story in. Um, it's interesting looking at now looking at Badland Brawl because we talked about when we initially finished Snuppy Rustling for the Shenanigan Jam last year, we were like, we could just polish this up. We could literally polish this up and publish it as a multiplayer PvP thing. Within yeah, like we, we could have just this core game concept done and published in four months. Mm-hmm. But then we were looking around, we're like, everybody's making this thing right now, yeah. which is these either like a card-based game or a, a sort of just PvP-oriented thing. And we said, okay, so if that's the case, is there something else we can do here? Is there some other interesting twist that would allow us to put this game not against all those people, but into its own uh, genre category? And so that's actually where the basically the buddies aspect of the Scuffle Buddies game comes into play. Um, 
So I can't say any more about it than that, but there's a lot more going on than what you see in a game like Battle Brawl or, uh, you know, Clash Royale or any of these other, other games. Yep. Mm-hmm. And by the time we launch Scuffle Buddies, it'll be, you know, 2030. Basically. So people will have forgotten about Badland Brawl anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, there's it's guaranteed there's going to be more of these coming out. Like, it's just guaranteed. Mm-hmm. So we've already seen it with, I mean, Clash Royale is essentially the same thing, but from top, from the top. Top, top down with multiple lanes. And- yeah. This one's one lane from the side. Uh, and so it's, you know, there's going to be more of them. So it's always about having really good execution. And, and we talked about this in our talk at, at, in Uruguay about, again, honing your production processes and being fast because the goal is actually to be out before the other people so that they get compared to you as opposed to the other way around. Right. Um, and so that you can absorb the market before they do. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And this, this simultaneous invention idea, I've always found pretty fascinating because uh, it, it, was, it was weird to me when I was young that all of a sudden one year there's ants and a bug's life. Both mm-hmm. came out at the same time, mm-hmm. both from two completely distinct studios. And like, we're making CGI games or uh, movies about bugs. Yep. And I feel like Deep Impact and Armageddon came out same, at the yeah, same time. Same, same year. They were within mo- like a couple months of each other. Mm-hmm. Both studios are like, we're making a movie about asteroids hitting the earth. Yep. And that happened, right? And there's like a couple of volcano movies that yep. came out in the same year. Like Dante's Peak and like Inferno mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, and then I think... There was like the 2012 movie. There was some other thing that came like, yep. this happens just constantly. constantly yeah. uh, and, and I think there's, there's a book called what technology wants, which is kind of obsessed with this idea. Mm-hmm. Um, basically that, that innovation like this happens simply because the conditions of, of sort of uh, the technological environment or the conditions of the cultural environment are such that they sort of naturally bring about ideas. Mm-hmm. And people and somewhere somebody is just going to be receptive to that, and they're going to be like, "Oh yeah, this is great!" Like they they will have had a eureka moment, you know, where they've thought of something completely new because the conditions around them were right to prompt that idea. Mm-hmm. But that means that somebody else probably is too. probably exposed to yeah, similar yeah. conditions, right? And if so, and actually probably a lot of people, but yeah. yeah, then you then you get that subset, that random subset of people who are have come up with that idea at the same time and are also capable of executing it. Right. And so that's really? why that's why you don't see 10 Armageddon movies in one summer. Right. Not everybody two. can make a blockbuster scale yeah, movie. Almost, no, almost <laughs> right. nobody can, right? It's yeah. the same deal with making making a, a viable game that could go out in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's almost nobody who can actually do that from a statistical perspective. So so while, the, while there are probably a lot of people making the same kind of thing that you are making. Um, how many of them can execute it? How many of them can execute it? It's going to be not very many. So now it's just a dice roll about you getting out before that one or two other mm-hmm. people actually actually get out with right. the same thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating concept. It, and what, it's it's weird because once you are aware of it, you can't help but see this just everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, next question comes from Wooland77. You seem to be very agnostic to trends in the gaming industry. To what extent is playing games important to making games? Mm. well since games take again as we said like somewhere between usually a year to three years to make and get out there uh any games you're playing are essentially they're the, the trends were four years in the making again, yeah the, the trend is actually four years behind what you see right and so part of the interesting thing actually about uh being on the dev side and interacting with so many other devs is actually getting to see the other side of it so getting to talk to people uh, and like, like I said, we have about 600 people now in our, in our dev lists and in our, uh, our contact system. And those are people we've all talked to about what they're making. And so it's interesting because you can see maybe what's actually coming in, coming in, you know, two or three years because we know all these people who are actively making new games. Um, as far as the actual play goes, I think the, the most important part of, of playing new games is, is oftentimes just to have that, have those potential moments where you see how you could comparatively take a system from, a currently existing game or a way that they do a particular thing and just apply it to your own. And there's that line for, for art, which is that great artists steal. Uh, I think yeah. it's the same thing with game dev. You go play a game and you're like, oh, wow, this this game has an infinite inventory system that manages itself. I'll take that. Yeah, well, we, actually, we, actually met, uh, we met this uh, dude down in Uruguay who's a solo developer. He's making mm-hmm. a game called Forager, mm-hmm. uh, which is available on Itch. Um Super friendly guy. Uh, just making this game on his own, but it's a it's a crafting based kind of a game. And he, when we were, we sat down to chat with him, and he's like, "Listen, I am stealing like almost everything that you guys have done in crafting." Yes. <laughs> we're like, "That's fine." But it's, it's really fun for us because that gets that feeling of for us that gets that feeling of pushing the genre forward, right? Because that's that's what 
what you do. Mm-hmm. The reason why you have a genre is to rely on these various uh, design heuristics to sort of get you started and get going. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, once somebody breaks the rules and shows that it's totally fine right. or even better, then you can be like, oh, well, mm-hmm. I'm going to take that. Because I think it's a big part of it is looking around. We had one of these where we were looking at uh, sort of kicking up some of the juice in our games. And, and I think Seth saw a game that just rotated the camera when the screen shook. Instead of just shaking it left and right and up and down, it actually mm-hmm. tilted it, which, again, shouldn't be a breakthrough. Yeah. But we were like, oh, we can do oh, that. Oh, yeah. We can do, yeah, let's just do that. <laughs> and yeah. it adds a nice little, you know, punch to yeah, everything. So, yeah, because our original camera shake was just more like camera vibration. Right. Yeah. Like the camera just literally just vibrate. So now we have two types of camera shake where we can actually shake it where it's almost like it's kind of rocking back and forth. And then we also have the vibration now. So now we have multiple tools in our kit. Yeah. So I think it's- Is that going to go back into Crashlands some updates so we get some I hope, fancier I screen shake? I think so. That'd nice. be nice. It's, you you got to deploy it carefully because also mm-hmm. now with these weird long phones with a two by one yeah, yeah, yeah. when you if you rotate the screen only one degree you it feel feels that. like you're gonna throw up yeah. <laughs> so you gotta like really you yeah, gotta really one degree but then you have to go two thousand pixels away right. to see the effect of that yes yeah. which is, which is amplified pretty yeah. dramatically yeah <laughs> so but i think that's that's the whole purpose of playing new games is actually just to see what everybody else is doing and and, you know, find new effects that you like and on the art side, uh, find stuff that gets you inspired. And then also ideally to be surprised, but I'm going to be honest, like it doesn't happen that much. So one of the games I found most surprising I've talked about before was the hands of fate game, uh, which the sequel just came out recently because I just never seen a game that operated the way that one does, where it was this weird combination mm-hmm. of, of dice rolling, uh, cards, and then like first third combat. person combat that was really punchy. Uh, and it was just really neat. And the whole thing just like it captivated me for like three days. And that doesn't happen too much, truthfully. Um, yeah, most games just feel there's kind of the they same. Just feel the same. Uh, but I think that's that's the thing to keep your eye out on and just kind of give you regular inspiration points. But then always take notes. Like I think that's the funny thing about it. Uh, one of my friends came over and you know I, he asked what I've been doing all day, and I was like, oh, I've just been you know I've been converting this book I read into a bunch of notes, and I and then I'm putting these into our marketing template. And he's like, so you're telling me you basically do book reports for fun? And I was like, yeah. And it's the same thing. With, <laughs> the same thing you do with games. We're playing a game. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You know, it's weird that they did this particular thing and you just write it down and then we'll have a discussion about it in house yep. later. Um, and I think it's a big point. Like if you're just playing them, but you're not paying attention, then who cares? Maybe but, we'll do something else. Yeah. But on the developer side, you you can't follow the trend because if you do, Correct. it takes you're late. You're too late. Yeah, you're too late. It'll, it'll take you, you know, one to three years to implement yeah. some trend that you've seen. And by then nobody, nobody wants that anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. Yeah, so think about, so World of Warcraft nailed it. And then for the next eight years, we've got just MMO MMO after MMO being like, this is going to be the one that unseats WoW. And it's like, no, because people are already playing WoW. They're good. (laughs) They're busy. They're too busy to even know that your game exists, Mm -hmm. you know? And I mean, this is, this is PUBG. Mm -hmm. Uh, So now that, now that it's, what is it like six months out or something like that? I mean, we are, we're already seeing the cusp of like the, the dawn of the The clone wars. Yeah. The clone wars of, Mm Uh, of battle royale style games. Now, this is going to be a little bit bloodier of a fight because of how how pre publication quality PUBG yeah. was. Because PUBG is going to lose this fight. It's going to lose actually because yeah, unless they do something amazing. Yeah, because it came out. It came out too early. It was it was it was half baked when it came mm-hmm. out, right? Yep. Uh, which actually yeah. makes me wonder too. Had they had they held on to held on to that game in dev longer because the the remarkable thing is that they were they really were kind of the first to that they had to solve a huge number of problems basically while people were playing the game that now they've also solved for other people Mm -hmm. right uh hence the big fight between them and epic right but had they not had this success would would epic have converted oh no Fortnite into that game they actually would have launched they like that would have been off the table now probably and so now their biggest competitor wouldn't even be there they'd have a highly polished game so that not only did they have a game people love, but also they didn't. They can lock out. Look like shit. Yeah. Well, yeah. and also Fortnite launched pretty recently uh, before PUBG, and it just wasn't doing well. Yep. I think so, it was after PUBG. I think was it? Yeah. And it, was it was just pretty kinda, close. Yeah. But either either way, it was a matter of of Epic has this highly polished game that relies on the same third person kinds yep. of mechanics. Very easy to convert it to PUBG, and they hadn't written game. it off yet. And then they saw the sort of thing that they could do because. Mm-hmm. Because PUBG was such a rising hit at that time, you know. Yeah, but, so, I mean, yeah. I, I remember playing PUBG and being impressed at the concept, but very unimpressed at the execution. Ex- the general execution, like I was riding in a riding in a motorcycle with somebody, and I could see my character like stuttering around, you know, like bouncing around and stuff. <laughs> like something I get shot, like I don't know where it's coming from. 
I got like, it's just very kind of all these rough edges where I couldn't right. feel like I could really enjoy the game. But, you know, if you watch people playing Fortnite, you know, it's, Real it's beautiful, right. you know, and it looks smooth as butter. And so it's that kind of edge that, you know, makes me think, well, it's, it, this, this is actually an interesting problem that you don't see very often is somebody making a game that goes into early access that's really unpolished, but such a good concept that they actually they lose it out. to their own clones. And actually, I mean, three, <laughs> right. three's yeah. kind of had yeah. this problem. It's hard yeah. to lose. Yeah, actually, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Um, so threes, threes, they launched as a, as a, it's a real simple puzzle game. We all know it as 2048 yep. because they launched it as a, as a real simple puzzle game. It took them like a year to make it. And it was a couple bucks. Um, the game concept is simple enough that I know like in, internally we're able to make a game like that in a matter of hours, mm-hmm. um, which means anybody else like now that, like you said, now that they've solved all the hard problems yep. of making a puzzle game like yeah. this. Yeah. They, they've solved all of it and they yeah. made it simple. So now, now everybody else just has a solution. Yeah. Anybody can it. look at it and go, yeah, I'll just do that. Um, and so then 2048 was mm-hmm. just a clone of threes, but it was free. Yep. And, and it looked better. Yeah. So Sort of go. like, sort of like what you got going on with uh, Fortnite, right? It's free and it looks better. Well, I think yeah. the, the, other, the other thing with the idea of keeping up with industry trends is that the unfortunate fact that games just take a fuckload of time to make. Yeah, there's no way, you know, if you're if your game takes two years to make, and then you realize that maybe you're on the wrong side of the trend. We can uh, do. What do you got? Yep. What are you going to do about it? Um, you just got to ignore the trends. You probably just need to ignore it and see if you can knock it out, and then again pivot the game slightly to get. On a different side of whatever. Yeah. The, well, the and if your is. goal is is to is to be is to predict trends so that you're kind of at the right cusp the wave, of it, then then you fall prey to the same thing that every predictor does, which is that you're going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And we've and, seen this with VR already. I mean, there's yeah, been exactly. a bunch of studios who haven't certainly have not found success in VR yet. No. Yeah. Down, yeah. When we when we did our uh, panel in Uruguay, we asked we just asked a room full of people like, how many of you are making VR games? And it's like half. Mm-hmm. Right. And so. And when we were at Steam Dev Days last year, way more than half. It was easily three quarters of the yeah. audience. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I, I think the reason that we're agnostic toward these things is we realize we can't predict them. Uh, we can't predict trends, and also we can't we can't take advantage of trends. We can't take advantage of them, and so our focus should just be on making just really, really good shit mm-hmm. that's in our wheelhouse that we know how to. And then do. just kind of watch what's happening so that we can adapt if we have to. Yeah. And I will say one of our one of our rules kind of going forward here is that we do try to actually look at the market in a very realistic sense and say what is what might be missing right now mm-hmm. that we could possibly fill fill the gap with. And then if but there's knowing that by the time we actually release some hundred like, things yeah. might have filled that somebody gap. else is already looking at it. Right. So we still have to differentiate the thing that we're making enough. It can't just be like, oh, there's a gap here. Let's go fill that gap. It's. Let's fill that gap and then add all this other stuff that is also really interesting and good that people are really into so that it's not just a matter of plugging a hole. It's a matter of right. identifying a thing that really truly is missing while also shoring up the whole product so that it can't it can't suffer from a simultaneous invention problem. Well, we actually we actually experienced this with the first professional game we ever worked on. Yeah. Which was a game called One Epic Night. Mm-hmm. This wasn't as part of Butterscotch Shenanigans. This was at a studio we worked at before Butterscotch Shenanigans. And it's uh this was the dawn of the endless runner mm-hmm. sort of uh genre explosion because Temple Run came out. Temple Run came out as a paid game and did badly, actually. And then they made it free and laced it with in-app purchases and all of a sudden it just took off. Mm-hmm. Um and once other studios started seeing the sort of income potential and just how interested people were in this kind of a game then everybody started rushing to get their own 3D endless runners out. And so the studio that we were in at the time uh, jumped onto this and we just took too long. Mm-hmm. Like we took way too long to make this game. And I think uh, it was the, the month right before we were going to release. I think yeah. Six different, six different, endless highly r- polished yeah. endless runners came out. And so by the time we launched it, actually the reviews were, this is easily the best endless runner we've played, but it's just another. It's endless. just another endless runner. <laughs> it it so, was brutal. That so was so three brutal. out of five. Yeah, almost every review was the same. It was like two out of five or three out of five. Not because of the game, but because of, they were tired. It was too late. Yeah, everybody was tired of it. Yeah, um, and so it did. And actually, one of the big points of the game was to try to create an endless runner that had a lot of extra interesting mechanics to it. Mm-hmm. So you weren't just running. You also have you were a knight and like you had a shield and you could like stab enemies that you ran past and like use your shield to break stuff and like. Um, you had potions and trinkets and you could equip stuff and it actually had all these cool systems in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of that mattered 
because it was just another endless runner yeah, by the time it came out. Which is also, it's kind of, I remember hearing pretty frequently advice given to upcoming devs. Um, well, actually, even outside of games and in other industries as well, that when you're trying to figure out what to do, you know, what to make or what to write or whatever, to take a thing that you like and find a way to make that thing better, right? Which is terrible advice. Mm-hmm. Because cause the only <laughs> way that that can happen is if there's already a backlog of that thing. That thing already exists. That's why you like it. And that's why you like it. And you're going to go make incremental progress. And nobody cares about incremental progress. Mm-hmm. Like People may agree, yeah, this is better. People care about but I'm new, gonna keep playing WoW. but I'm going to keep playing WoW. Yeah, people right. care about new, not improved. Right. So unless yeah. it's an iPhone, mm-hmm. in which case people are like, fuck yeah, it's very slightly larger. Yep. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, next question comes from Ryan Dilf. Why does Patreon feel so icky? <laughs> people pay other people directly for doing something awesome. It's a no brainer. But as a consumer, it's just so darn hard to pony up the cash, even for people who have the budget. Mm. Well, first of all, I just want to say the Patreon logo makes me so angry I could spit. Their new logo is a stick and a ball. I don't know what it means. Oh, they have a new logo? I don't even know. <laughs> they this. redid it and they announced the rebrand like a couple months ago, and I was like, why? I why have, I don't have to Google it while we're talking. Why, so you, do, why you do this, Patreon? It's literally stick a and stick ball. and a circle. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what it's supposed to mean. Who maybe knows? Maybe they're opening up a new stick ball division. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, so <laughs> got that off my chest. Uh, yeah, so Patreon's interesting. I, I'm not, it's, yeah, I, I want it to be, it's supposed to be a good stopgap, right? Where it's like the problem with the internet is essentially that all the ad money's dried up. And it should be the case that you as a person who consumes content are, feel some responsibility for keeping the person alive whose content you consume. This is, I mean, this is sort of like the... Yeah, that's the logo. That's the logo? Adam just found it. in God's name? (laughs) It's a blue stick with an orange circle next to it. Oh my God, they probably paid a lot of money for that. (laughs) Terrible garbage logo. Uh, Yeah, they could have paid us a lot of money. We could have given them a terrible garbage logo for... Would have taken me less time. Much cheaper. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so so it kind of comes down to this question of what the internet is for and what the internet does, I think. And this is... The internet is free to play. That's basically what it is. Which is the problem. And that's so, why the internet is a pile of garbage. Well, I think the reason why Patreon, so we've, we've discussed it internally about doing it, but the problem is that we're already making all of the stuff and actually running a Patreon means we have to make more stuff. Yeah. We have to do more to get people to pay us for the stuff that they're already consuming. That they're already paying that us that for. That they're already actually. paying us for or should be paying us for in some context. Yep. And I think that's the, sh- the should is basically the problem where uh, ad revenue on the internet's really been drying up. Uh, and as a result, you have this huge swath of people who create stuff and a huge, a bigger, much bigger swath of people who consume all of it, but who don't give a fuck about keeping the people alive who it's make it. It's the free rider problem. Yeah. Right. And so as a result, then, you know, you'll, you'll have stuff. I mean, if you look at uh, even Touch Arcade, Touch Arcade has their own Patreon and it's actually now kind of the backbone of their, their ability to be, uh, to be alive because the ad revenue has just like disappeared the last couple of years. Right. And yeah, I mean, they have a huge reader base, but then you look at that and it's like the total number of people on there is like maybe a thousand or something every month. In their um, Patreon? Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty low. But, and they're like one compared, of the bigger. Yeah, compared to their reader base, it's right. basically nobody. But they're one of the bigger ones. Yeah, and yeah, and their reader base is full of people who are just avid supporters of, of Touch Arcade. And the, you know, it's, right. it's it's one of the main places they go to get news and also just to socialize with, mm-hmm. with people they've met that all have the similar interests. And there's no there's just no reason in the universe why they shouldn't be supporting that thing right and and yet they aren't but, but i think well that yeah that leads to the the real question which is why does it feel weird to support something on patreon i don't even i guess to me it's not a it's not a sense of feeling weird though i i imagine that could be an additional thing that that happens uh but it's it's actually just the nature of the of the the it's the free-to-play nature of the internet which is that you don't pay for stuff on the internet mm-hmm. you just go look at things and like everything is expected to be free and if it's not that's offensive in some way. Right. And so, mm-hmm. so any barrier at all that goes up in front of you, you have an endless sea of content around you that you can go find an alternative to. There's almost nothing on Patreon that you can't find a free alternative to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the real problem is if, so let's say, God forbid, touch arcade collapses mm-hmm. because they can't get the Patreon support and the ad revenue continually goes down, which it is doing, but, uh, but they just, they just aren't able to pay their bills. They shut down. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's no mobile news out there. It just means there's going to be a lot of lower quality yeah. uh, news spread out across a larger number of sites, mm-hmm. right? It's still out there. It's just garbage and hard to find, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, so like you're saying, there's there's endless free alternatives. They may not mm-hmm. be the same you know, quality. Quality, yeah, not by um, a stretch. Yeah, and so- What's the whole joke? Like you get what you pay for. 
Yeah, right. And, and most people pays for anything on the internet. Yeah, <laughs> so, so that's what they get. Which <laughs> gets garbage. But I think yep. it's it's an unsettling fact. And you know, of course, all of us do it too because it's the internet. It's what people do. But but that that so much of the way we consume media now does not in any way reflect assisting the person who gave us that media in the first place. Uh, whether it's someone who writes reviews or you know helps you make a decision about a purchase. Uh, or or just like entertaining content that you read. Yeah, but there's um, a, there's also this problem of um, I think about things like if you go if you ever try to read a news article on your phone, mm-hmm. you ever try to do this like go to a like a legitimate. You mean news read site? A, a series of pop up ads? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. It, they they just lace ads, they weave them into the article like every paragraph. You're scrolling past things. Sometimes there's those ads that don't let you scroll mm-hmm. until you, like, you get to it, and then it's like you're stuck there for a while. Mm-hmm. Some <laughs> ads pop up and they just start playing just like sounds. They're just blasting yeah. shit mm-hmm. out there, and so uh, because all because. The, the ad economy, it's an attention economy. And whichever ad gets your attention, that's the one that wins, right? So they're, they're sort of, there's an arms race for which ad can be the most in your face and the most obnoxious. Um, and that's where the site's money comes from. Mm-hmm. So a site that's like a journalism site or whatever, there's this constant push and pull between delivering quality, immersive, contiguous content and making money, right? So they have to show you those ads People don't like that, so they make ad blockers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so people use ad blockers, which then throttles down uh, the ad revenue, which means then the remaining ads or the remaining sort of uh, people who are being shown ads who don't use ad blockers, they get even more obnoxious ads thrown in their face mm-hmm. to count, try to counteract the fact that half the people are no longer seeing ads. Um, and so you have this, there's there's just no possible future in which this is a, there's a win. Yeah, it's right? not, like it's, it's not going to pan out. Yeah, it's not panning out well. I mean, it already and it's already been the case. You've seen you've seen this these calls for support from from their audience from basically every major publication. A lot of them have moved to try to figure out some other subscription models or put in just straight up blockers, paywalls, like various paywalls that do get around the the ad block. Yeah, problems. and really, I mean, all of this can, is easily solved by loot boxes. I mean, if you just <laughs> true. if you, you just know? you go there, you get a random article. Yeah, you go mm-hmm. there, you pay five bucks to get a bunch of keys, and then you get your daily article box, mm-hmm. and you open it up, and then sometimes you get a legendary article, and then you that's can trade really those well written, trade those mm-hmm. with other players for cash. Yeah, you know? so you can trade your articles. Maybe you get just like oh, it's just like a common shitty article that's just like a slideshow. You're like how mm-hmm. oh, fuck, you know? But then sometimes you get the legendary article that's like a really well written sort investigative of investigative reporting. Investigative mm-hmm. reporting piece. Um, most of the time, it's just a shitty BuzzFeed article. Yeah, <laughs> so very entertaining though. Yeah, yeah. I, so I guess the the thing that's weird about Patreon is just the fact that it has to exist. I think is to me a little uncomfortable because um, the gap that it's filling is literally the survival gap for creators. On the thing that makes me internet. uncomfortable about Patreon is not the service itself; it's actually going there. Like if you if you go to Patreon and try to find things. Um, really what you find is just like a huge number of people just trying, like yeah. trying so fucking hard. And like, they've mm-hmm. got like a thousand videos up and they've got like one supporter, you know, giving them like a dollar a month. And mm-hmm. you just, it's like, it's heartbreaking, you know, cause yeah. like there's so many people out there mm-hmm. trying to make stuff and there's just too much stuff, you yeah. know? Well, I think, I, I think that's actually the summary of the problem across the board is that, that the internet did something amazing, which was made it so that everybody was now equal because all you need is access to a server somewhere and enough money to afford a domain name or to rent a fraction of one from somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, and actually most of those just do that for free, right? Because it's, it's right. been free to play since, since the beginning. So now there's just free access to allowing you to put up content that other people can see. So now everything is equal. So now if you go, like you look at BuzzFeed, which... Uh, yeah, they do. They make a lot of money doing their thing, uh, but they they make garbage. Mm-hmm. There's just no way around that fact, right? They make absolute garbage that they probably have some good stuff in there here and there. Mm-hmm. Versus, say, like The Atlantic, which makes, it's like top-notch journalism right. that is almost completely dead and doesn't exist anymore, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you can just, you can read those, like, you just click two links side by side, and right. now those two things pop up. And uh, and so even though... We were talking. We were talking earlier about how there's a free alternative to everything, and it's going to be worse probably. But the fact that they're just together mm. means that all of the good stuff is brought down to the level of the bad stuff, which I think is the same problem with the free to play market in games. Which is that, yeah, like all of the free stuff, on average, the free stuff is way worse than the stuff that isn't free, right? 
but there's so much free stuff that it feels offensive that there's stuff you have to pay for. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anytime I see a paywall, like if I go to a, an article or something and it's like, Ooh, sorry, you can't see this. Cause you got to be a subscriber. My usual response is, well, I guess I'm not reading that. Yeah. Yep. Right. Exactly. Well, that sucks. Yep, right. yeah. Cause again, it's, I think the pro- pro- problem too is that you can't know the value of having read a thing until after you've read it. Right. So, like, mm-hmm. what's the selling point there? Yep. How do you decide whether to pay for an article? But that's well, not true the, with, like, buying a fucking newspaper. You right. just buy a newspaper, then you go read it. Because like, I'm sure it's a physical sure object. something. Well, not only that, but, like, you're not buying an article. You're buying, yeah. like, the paper. Oh, yeah. whole shit right. well, you've things. come to believe in that paper for some reason, so yeah. you do it. But, but, but I think also the, the pricing models for stuff has, it hasn't caught up with how mm-hmm. people understand the world now because of free-to-play. Because everything is free to play, and so that means that you have to that microtransactions are the only way for things to work, mm-hmm. or or really low or you know low dollar subscriptions and things. Because there's actually been a few times like I read literally like one Atlantic article a month, probably usually when somebody sends it to me because they're mm-hmm. like, hey, this is really good, and you should read it. So I I, I actually consume almost none of that content, uh, but it's really good, so I'd be happy to pay them for it. Right. Except that if I want to, I think I have to pay like $200 a year or something completely batshit mm. crazy mm-hmm. to read. So that's like, not great. Yeah. But, <laughs> that, but that's my option. Right. Cause there's no like credit system where I can be like, yeah, I want to, I like that. I can't pay for the kind of amount right. of content. So really these, these companies, if they could, if they could somehow enact sort of the Netflix model mm-hmm. where like, Oh, five, 10 bucks a month. Maybe well, fuck yeah. Right. But like in, in ye olden days, like eight years ago <laughs> when, <laughs> If you wanted to get, say, a subscription to like Wall Street Journal or something like that, yep. it's a paper thing that gets delivered to your house and it's fucking huge. Yeah, there are only, and there are only like, some people who can deliver that content yeah. to you that's good enough. And it's hundreds of dollars a year, you yep. know, because they're printing it and handing it to you. Like yep. somebody's coming to your house and handing it to you. That, that You don't need that anymore. So, and it's digitally distributed. So like, just bring the, bring the prices down. Yeah. Well, and all know? the, and there were people making little tiny magazines and newspapers and mm-hmm. stuff too, but they couldn't afford to like bring that shit to your door. Right? right. And so, so there was no, there was no comparison between the two. Like if you wanted to get local stuff, you would have to go like to, to the, to the zine, right. Play, you know, brick and mortar place where they have their pile of things out in the front mm-hmm. or whatever and go find that thing that you curated for yourself. Cause if you were into it for some reason. Uh, but that was the only way there was no, there was no just common pool where everything lives. Well, there's been, there's been a few attempts to, to remedy this. I know they've always been a very high interest from general sort of in the startup. The startup industry has been curious about this problem of monetization on the web for a long time. Mm-hmm. And there's been things like, I think there was one where it was, it was called like pie or something. Do you remember this? Um, mm-hmm. Where you like, you basically put in a certain amount of money a month. And then like when you read an article or something like that, then it would like chunk out like a piece of your pie, right? Right. Or you could like freely give it to people or else, which is a cool idea. The problem is, of course, again, if the whole internet doesn't run like that. Not only that, but that feels bad because then you're like, oh, I read a shitty article, but I still had to pay for it. Yeah. What, so, <laughs> right. Well, actually, well, there's, a, so, there's a tipping one too that operates on a similar principle. Oh. The problem is like, because again, all of it's voluntary. So you're yeah. all just, you're just sort of yeah. like. Well, so I was, I was actually talking to sure about this this morning because we were, we we're talking about the, the general trend of, uh, like where steam is going, which mm-hmm. is, which is, so if you think about what has happened with video, somehow video on the internet has managed to solve this problem and nobody else has, mm-hmm. which is you've got YouTube, which is largely full of garbage, but there's still stuff on there that is good. Right. And anybody can put anything on there. Mm-hmm. So in effect, YouTube is like the mobile stores, sure, right? Um, huge glut of content, almost universally free. Most of the good stuff is stolen. Most of the good stuff is stolen. Uh, so who knows like whether you can find something good, but then they use all kinds of algorithms to push you toward the content you want. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then you've got Netflix, which is doing incredibly well. Like they don't have a Patreon, mm-hmm. right? Like they're just, they're doing business and they have a, a subscription service. They deliver highly curated quality content that also sort of recycles out. So, uh, you're, you can be pretty much rest assured that most of the things that you find on Netflix are actually at least decent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, so people are willing to pay for that service and it's not like everyone they watch, it like chunks out a, a credit, you know, it's right. like you just pay your monthly fee and now boom, you've got it and you can just do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And those things are accessible to the places too, but everywhere you would go to get those things, you're going to have to pay for it in some way. 
Right. Right. So if you want to buy a DVD, mm-hmm. that's like 20 bucks. Or if you want to go to Amazon just, instead, then either you need to be in Prime or you need to pay for a rental. Or so, right. so the idea is that you can't, that, that content just isn't free. Mm-hmm. That's paid content. Right. And you can pay into subscription services that pool. Because the problem here, like the reason that this doesn't work on the internet to have paid content is because we all visit like a hundred fucking websites. Yep. Right. And we get our news from all kinds of places. We follow people's links, you know, from all the things that they're sharing with us. And so, so we need the same thing. We need a curated single location that manages in, paying money to right. people who are creating content. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause it's the, it's the only practical way because people aren't willing even if they liked a dozen different websites and visit you them regularly, them, yeah. you're not going to go pay a hundred dollars a year for each for a dozen different websites, you know? Yeah. It's got to be curated in yeah. some way. But this, this does kind of beg the question of with steam direct, uh, we've now reached a point where there isn't actually a, th- there used to be a solution in the games that was kind of like Netflix in the sense that like there's a curated place with actually mm-hmm. a pretty low volume of content compared to, you know, the rest mm-hmm. of the internet but where you could pretty much rest assured that, yeah, whatever I buy, you know, I can, pretty good. I can pretty much, yeah, it's pretty much good. Um, and that's no longer true where we're now Google, Google play, the app store, steam, you know, itch, like any place you go to get games now, uh, is a lot more like YouTube mm-hmm. and it's getting yeah. more and more like that where anybody can just put in. But I think that's where a lot of these, there are a lot of subscription services are popping up. So you got, uh, like the humble monthly actually probably is the best example of that where you pay it's like 12 bucks a month and you just get a bunch of rad games every mm-hmm. month. Right. right. But it's, but I think it's different in this. Isn't it like it is curated. It's curated, but yeah. it's also use you, if you subscribe, you don't get retroactive access to stuff, right? Correct. It's like, it's yeah. really it's new stuff. Yeah. So, so the, the incentive to subscribe doesn't go up over time. Right. If you just miss something like, well, shit, I guess you missed it. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah. So this is all really, I mean, it's all really, it's difficult. Yeah, but it is probably going to, I think games are, I think just everything that people are going to have to pay for is going to have to move towards bundled subscription kinds mm-hmm. of models because I think that's going to be true for games. And this um, this will fortunately get us out of the loot box problem. It'll get yeah. us, you know, if you yeah. just subscribe, you play the games. And this is, I know um, Hatch, Rovio's mm-hmm. Hatch is doing this and we've got uh, Crashlands in there uh, as part of their sort of pioneer beta program. It's mm-hmm. Subscription service for games. You just subscribe. That's it. You fire it up on your Android device. You play the shit out of it. Do mm-hmm. whatever you want. Right. Yep. Amazon did this, but they did it in the grossest way possible with Amazon Underground. As per usual. Yep. yep. Which then collapsed, I'm pretty sure, by yep. now. Yep. Yeah. So that last year. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, their, their business model was nobody puts any money in the system mm-hmm. and somehow developers get paid a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of yeah. money. But did, not very much because nobody put money in. Yeah. So it was, uh, didn't work out. Actually, yeah, that was right. There was a, it was a completely free, it wasn't free to play. It was a completely free subscription model. You subscribe to it without paying anything. Mm-hmm. They show you ads. And then they show, did they show you ads? Yeah. No. So there you go. There, you go. Okay. there it is. So, all right. Yeah. So who knows where the hell this is going? We'll find out. Down, I guess, is the general, <laughs> yep. general trajectory. <laughs> so we'll see. All right. So that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you all for listening. We'd like to thank our studio wrangler, Monique, and our producer, Fat Bard, for putting this episode together, and the Bees Gotcha Dev team for having our backs while we record this podcast. Special thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord and forums running. And if you'd like to get more involved in the Bees Gotcha community, you can hop into our Discord server, which is at discord.gg slash bscotch. Come say hey. We also have a section in there that's just for game dev, and lots of people are still working on their Shenanah Jam games from back in May. Um, so we'll probably be sort of beefing up that section of the discord as we ramp up for the shenanigan jam going forward. So, uh, hop on in there, come say, Hey, also, if you'd like to adorn your body with butterscotch merch, you can check out our shop, which is at shop.bscotch.net. Or if you'd like to send us your swag, we have a mailbox, so you can head on over to mailbox.bscotch.net and all the info is there. So thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.